0: Here's the rundown for this edition of The Cigar Dave Show. Number one, a huge court victory for the cigar industry and cigar connoisseurs. Glenn Loop of the Premium Cigar Association joins us to discuss. Number two, socialist Bernie Sanders plays capitalist to his wife and stepson in a shady deal. The millionaires, billionaires, zillionaires, how dare they? And number three, American Airlines' captain conducts a bizarre pre-flight TED-type talk. We have the audio. The Cigar Dave Show is presented by Gurkha, the world's finest cigars, including the new Gurkha Pure Evil. Blended for cigar connoisseurs able to handle a full-flavored cigar loaded with strength, power, and richness. Don't let the name fool you. Gurkha Pure Evil is pure cigar pleasure. Visit GurkhaCigars.com and buy Davidoff of Geneva and their Camacho portfolio of cigars, including the Camacho Triple Maduro. With a four-country blend of all Maduro tobaccos, Camacho Triple Maduro delivers an explosion of bold, earthy flavors, including cedar, pepper, and subtle sweetness. The Camacho Triple Maduro, available at DavidoffGeneva.com.
1: This is the Cigar Dave Show with the General. An absolutely
0: humongous week for the cigar industry and those of us that love cigars. A big federal court case ruling in the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. We will get to all the details with Glenn Loop in just a few minutes. And we will give you the background into how the court case ended up the way it did. This goes way back. We're talking now going over nine years ago. So we will give you the rundown and what it means to you as a cigar connoisseur. Because the cigar industry was really looking at some severe restrictions on being able to create new blends, on on packaging issues, having to test cigars... Massive amounts of user fees. A great victory for those of us that know cigars are primarily for adults enjoyed by adults. long ash greetings and salutations. A long ash, snappy salute. Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Hashtag Save America Trump 2024. It is your global five-star general and alpha male-in-chief cigar. Dave, the general front and center, command center alpha. And we're going to do something a little different. Normally, we wait to the second segment to get to our international cigar litation and libation ceremony. But I have to celebrate We have to celebrate this giant court victory that we will discuss momentarily. So without any further delay...
1: an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the general to enjoy. It's time for National Cigar Litation Maneuvers.
0: I have pulled out a very, very special cigar, a celebratory cigar to celebrate this big victory, and it must take something huge for me to bring out from my personal humidor and my personal collection, a Partagas 150, no longer available The Partagas 150 was created by General Cigar, specifically Edgar Cullman Sr., the late Edgar Cullman Sr., may he rest in peace, one of the great men, true gentlemen in the cigar industry. He wanted to do something special to commemorate the 150th anniversary of Partagas. And while several of his tobacco buyers were in Spain, they happened to find Cameroon wrapper from 1990, uh, correction, from 1977. So it was 18 year old rapper in 1995. He took the rapper, they took a binder from Mexico and fillers from the Dominican Republican in Mexico and they created the Partagas 150 signature series. Limited number of boxes and the plan all along was to release about 60% of the boxes in 1995 and then save the rest to release down the road which General did a number of years ago. But I will never forget in 1996, Edgar Coleman Sr. personally giving to me a box of 50 Partagas 150 Signature Series double A's. It came in about eight different sizes. The AA, a seven and a half by 49 Churchill. Great looking cigar, red and gold band. It says Partagas 150. I keep these perfectly Condition perfectly humidified in my humidor 70 degrees, 70% humidity. Oh, the cameroon on this is beautiful. I've got nice white plume on here. And today, in and by the way, these are priceless. You cannot get these. The last time they released these, I want to say was right around 2018. And at the time, a box of the double A's were box of twenty correction, not 50, a box of 25. Uh, although i got a box of 50 which is interesting the box that i have is a was a big bundle uh, or not a bundle it was a box and it was uh, a nice uh, a, a cloth uh, almost like a, a just to secure the the cigars in like a bundle within the box so box of 25 1824. so the box that i had the value of it in 2000 what 1718 was probably around $3,700. It is priceless now. It is no longer available. This is a gorgeous looking cigar, medium bodied. The wrapper is exquisite with some sweetness, some pepper. And I, as we celebrate today, on one hand, on the other hand, we have some sad news to share with you. Our voice, tremendous voice talent, voice talent Ed, who you know, if you've been to any of our live Pleasure fests, He's our voice uh, live during our shows. You hear him during all of our shows. He's been our voice for, geez, got to be 20 years. Uh, Sad news, his mother, Norma Jean Weigel, passed away this past Monday at the age of 88. I met uh, Norma Jean several times, a lovely uh, woman. And so today I have another Partagas 150 in microphone position number two that is in an ashtray that will remain unsmoked uncut, unlit for the duration of the show in her memory. So Norma Jean Weigel passed away 88. Our condolences to Voice Talent Ed, his entire family, from everyone here at the Cigar Dave Show. I know many of our listeners as well that have gotten to know Voice Talent Ed at our, our many live shows. I'm sure you pass along your condolences. And so we remember Norma
1: Jean, may she rest in peace. Cigar-altering and highly-sharpened leaf-exposing device.
0: Oh, yeah, you hear that. That's the self-sharpening double-edged stainless steel guillotine ready for
1: action. Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus.
0: From the Cigar Dave R&D Laboratories, I've got what they call the welder, because I can adjust this. Listen to that. This is like a welder's torch, but it's one giant jet flame. This thing looks almost like a torpedo cigar, a Figurato. It is flat on the bottom and it curves up. And the designers at the Cigar uh, Dave R&D Labs, they wanted to recreate something that looked like a cigar. This has got a huge tank. It's probably about seven inches tall, heavy. And again, listen to that flame. I can adjust the flame. There's all the way, there's low, and I'm gonna keep it right at around medium.
1: There we go, so my Lightation device is ready. Cigar, Cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one. Perfect cut.
0: Oops hit my snifter there, that's going to be ready for a special libation. I almost hated to cut this Partagas 150 AA because I know now I've only got about 25 left. I think I only like them for special occasions over the last, Jesus, 28 years. So here we go. Here's another special occasion as I toast the foot of this beautiful Partagas 150. I can see the oils, the sheen, the white plume, meaning that the, the... Cigar tobaccos are properly aging, and I'm going to take my time. I don't want to overly burn this. Oh, this is beautiful. Oh, the aroma. Just before I even take a few puffs is fantastic. Beautiful. Let me now puff and rotate. Oh, squish it. Mmm. Mmm, 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 28 years old, this cigar. Mm. Wow. I'm getting notes of sweetness right off the bat. A little bit of spice, cinnamon type of notes. Mm. Mm-hmm. As I grow on a foot of the cigar, a perfect even amber glow.
1: Scotch, bourbon, beer, this is the Bold Alpha Weekly Spirits Tasting on The Cigar Dave Show.
0: Well, I've got a very special cigar, the Partagas 150 AA, 28 years old, and I need something, a libation that's just as special. I have pulled out my bottle of Corvassier XO Imperial that uses uh, that uses cognacs between 20 and 35 years of age. You're probably looking right now at this particular bottle, somewhere in the realm of $130 to $180, depending. And I'm going to just pour just a tad bit. And I have about a third of the bottle remaining. Oh, this is beautiful. Absolutely lovely. love the bottle. Very ornate. Now, this is a caramel-looking color. Almost a light brown. We will say cheers. Mmm. Oh. This is smooth. Wow. Getting some citrus, some orange, some caramel. Mm, A little pear, a little vanilla. Take another sip. Mmm. Absolutely fantastic. Two special products for our international cigar, litation, and libation ceremony. Getting some nice warmth down the palate, but not overly... Noticeable, just a touch of warmth. Let me take another puff of my Partagas 150. Mm. Oh, spectacular, orgasmic. Mm. Whatever cigar that you have lit and libation, I hope you are deriving as much joy from them as I am deriving from my Partagas 150 AA and my Corvacio XO. Imperial. When we return, we'll be joined by Glenn Loop, who is the director of state advocacy for the Premium Cigar Association as we talk the huge court victory for cigar connoisseurs and the cigar industry right around the corner. Gurkha has long been the king when it comes to opulent, grandly-made cigars. And the new Gurkha Pure Evil more than lives up to that legacy. Gurkha originally launched the Pure Evil 15 years ago as a limited-edition cigar. They went back to their blend vault. They tweaked the blend to add more flavor, more complexity. The result is a Gurkha Pure Evil that is loaded with flavor, full-body, Full Notes of Richness, Habano Wrapper, Nicaraguan Binder, Nicaraguan Filler. Don't let the name fool you. The Gurkha Pure Evil is pure cigar pleasure. Gurkha, the world's finest cigars. Visit Gurkhasigars.com. As I mentioned during the opening segment of this edition of the Cigar Dave Show, a huge court victory for the cigar industry and cigar connoisseurs, and we will get into all the details as I welcome Glenn Loop, longtime friend, the former longtime executive director of the Cigar Rights of America, and now the director of state advocacy for the Premium Cigar Association of America. Glenn, great to have you on on a celebratory note.
2: Cigar Dave, over the last nine years, you and I have had discussions on good times and bad, and it's nice to have a good one.
0: I agree with you totally. Now, let me talk about what the judge did rule, and then I want to go back, if, uh, if you would be so kind, back to where it all began. <laughs> really, I think in 2009, with the introduction of the uh, uh, Family Smoking Act, and then seven years later to 2016, where the FDA comes in and says, we are now going to extend the Family Smoking Act, which we can do, to cigars. But let's talk about the ruling first, then we'll go back to the history. So talk about this court case, how long this goes back, the ups and downs, and the result on Wednesday from U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta in Washington, D.C.,
2: Well, if we're starting with the court case, really you have to begin with the initial threat. And I'm staring at the document. April (coughs) 25, 2014, I woke up in a hotel room in Indianapolis. We were getting ready to do the cigars for the NRA National Convention, and the deeming rule came out. And I, I said, it's no way to start the day with cuss words of your opening remarks of the day. And it was painfully obvious. I scanned that document quickly, and it was painfully obvious the FDA was trying to do to do everything they could to equate premium handmade cigars with a pack of cigarettes. That rule became final in 2016, and the litigation began in 2017 with the, the first salvo launched uh, where we sued the Food and Drug Administration. Flash forward, I was in the courtroom with the first hearing of judge Meta and it, it was just the, the preliminary hearing where the FDA lawyers and our lawyer, Michael Edney were, were making the case and I could immediately tell this judge got it. He, the questions he asked the insightful, <clears throat> I would said this is not a judge that just surrenders everything to the court clerks. He studied the issues, asked insightful questions of, of both counsel and, um, you know, I attribute it to the fact that he went to the University of Virginia to law school, but that's just me.
0: There you go. <laughs> uh, as you are a, a – now, you're a native Virginian, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Okay. You and Thomas Jefferson go way back together.
2: Well, there's farms near my grandparents' farm that Thomas Jefferson did the land survey for. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Amazing. You know,
0: I, I was reading – I think Thomas Jefferson was only like thirty when he when he uh, wrote the Declaration of Independence, which is amazing when you think about it.
2: yeah, I live just an hour and a half south of of Monticello, so we'll, we'll tell some jokes about that sometime, but
0: i I'm sure so the <laughs> so this ruling by Judge Maida. now last year he made one ruling which was favorable to the cigar industry. What was that?
2: The warning labels. Uh, he said that we're not subject to the warning label. And that was our first victory in court. And it was literally what showed what dramatic overkill the FDA was after with regard to the cigar industry. It equated to 50% of a cigar box would have to be covered with a warning label, the top, the side, and the inside of a cigar box. Now, you think about, I walked into a local Kroger during that process and I saw a stack of Marlboros facing me in a case. I couldn't see a warning label on any of those uh, cases of Marlboro. And when the packet of cigarettes is facing, you don't see a warning label on the, facing you in, in a store. And yet they wanted to compel the cigar industry to cover 50% of our packaging with a warning label. And it was just dramatic overkill. And I'll never forget the words of Michael Edney, our, our litigation counsel. Is that it would have forced cigar packaging to become a quote, billboard for government speech. And another another great friend, Tom Bryant at the National Association of Tobacco Outlets, made it even more clear. He said, Glenn, if you want to know what the what the FDA is going to do to the cigar industry, study the cigarette industry. And on questions like manufacturing regulations, marketing and advertising regulations, he was exactly right, and that's the path they wanted To take this?
0: Well, all you need to do is visit Canada and walk into a cigar retailer's humidor. First of all, you cannot go into a humidor by yourself. You must be accompanied. So the humidor is locked, the walk-in humidor. You cannot touch a box of cigars until you have completed the purchase. And I believe within the last year or so, all the cigar boxes, it's almost a hundred percent warning label, if I'm not mistaken, Glenn.
2: Well, that's right. Plus the tax level. I'll never get our, our mutual friend, Jeff Borschewitz was in Canada and you know, a, a box of, uh, this was a box of JC Newman's uh, Julius Caesar cigars, which I think in the United States cost, I don't know, $300, $325, maybe 350 And Jeff posted a picture on Facebook of a, of a cigar shop in Canada. And that same box was 900 and $99.
0: Well, there's two factors there. Number one, you have the exchange rate. It's very high right now. So one U.S. dollar is worth, I think, like almost 130 Canadian, 126, 127, somewhere in that neighborhood. So you've got the exchange difference. So you can add 25% right off the bat. But the additional fees are the provincial tax, the excise tax, the federal tax. The taxes are absolutely out of control. And again, I stated many, many years ago, ...on the show that the last thing we want as cigar connoisseurs is to have to be escorted into a walk-in humidor... ...feeling like a criminal, that we can't touch any, any box of cigars, that we have to be escorted at all times... And that's part of the joy of being a cigar connoisseur is when we walk into a cigar retailer, walking into that humidor, getting that humidor experience, being able to smell the cigars and visually look at all the great packaging and the bands and the artistic work that is on the boxes. That's all part of the pleasure. And that goes away. You know, you lose. I always say cigars are not just visual, but they're also, you know, sensory in terms of, of, uh, of your smell but all of a sudden, if you lose the ability to have a beautiful piece of artwork on the on the box and a beautiful band on the cigar, that changes everything. It's it's that's the difference between enjoying, I think, a brand name cigar and a bundled cigar, is that it's part of the overall cigar
2: experience. And in Canada, you've got the blacked out windows so the right. children so the children can't see the tobacco. Uh,
0: it, it's unbelievable. It it really it, it really amazes me how the amount of freedoms are being taken away. And we could go into another dissertation about that under this administration, Glenn, but I want to confine it certainly to the big ruling. Now, the judge rejected the FDA's argument about the deeming rule. Now, before we talk about the deeming rule, let's go back in history. June 22, 2009, Barack Hussein Obama signs into law the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, hereafter referred to as the Tobacco Control Act, gave the FDA for the first time the authority to regulate the manufacturing, distribution, and marketing of tobacco products. That included restricting tobacco marketing and sales to youth, which the cigar industry has never done, nor does it do. It required uh, tobacco product warning labels, uh, uh, disclosure of ingredients in tobacco products, and a whole range of other items. And essentially, it gave the FDA, which cannot even regulate the safety of human food right now, the ability to create another massive administrative state within the FDA bureaucracy of what? 1,100 people? How many people work in the tobacco control division of the it's, FDA now?
2: It's like eleven to 1,500 uh, employees now.
0: Right. eleven to 1,500. And basically, you tell people, look... Tobacco, we know, whether it's cigars or cigarettes. Look, cigarettes are a different story. I say to people, I've never smoked a cigarette. I have no interest in smoking a cigarette. You know the risks of cigarette smoking. Cigars are enjoyed in moderation. They're enjoyed by adults. When was the last time, Glenn, you ever saw somebody running off an airplane to go light a premium cigar?
2: (laughs) It's Never. Never. When was the last
0: time you saw people huddled outside a building in rain and thunder and lightning or snow or hail to go light a premium cigar.
2: This doesn't happen. And you know the other big difference I've noticed? Cigarette smokers don't hug each other. <laughs> you see the cigar guys get together, whether they're at the, uh, the Corona, cigar Com- uh, Corona Cigar right there in Tampa or, or Edwards Cigar Shop. You walk in and everybody's hugging. I'm so glad to see cigarette smokers don't hug each other.
0: <laughs> no, well, remember I say it's also part of the camaraderie that we have as cigar connoisseurs. Remember, cigar connoisseurs we're optimistic. We look at at we we're, we're we celebrate life. We enjoy life. We don't we don't revel in the mis- misery of others. Whereas the enemies of pleasure, the pleasure police, they revel in the misery of others because they are so miserable themselves. And what gets the enemies of pleasure is they see cigar connoisseurs. They see them happy they see them socializing they see them telling jokes laughing having a good time and they just despise that they can't understand that but the family uh, uh, smoking prevention tobacco control act glenn june 22nd 2009 there was a provision that at the direction of the fda commissioner the commissioner could deem at any time cigars smokeless tobacco And any other tobacco products to be deemed uh, under the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. So if somewhere down the road an FDA commissioner woke up and said, you know, it's time that we deem cigars to be part of this act, that's all it took. And that's exactly what happened.
2: That's right. And it took them till, as I mentioned, April 25th, 2014 to do it. But... I'll take you another down uh, another walk down memory lane. You and I were together with all of the manufacturers in April of 2009 at the Biltmore Hotel in Miami for our first industry-wide meeting. I remember that. And I re- the the family the Tobacco Control Act was on the docket and I rem- Bobby Newman re- reminded me of this yesterday when we were having a conversation is at that meeting, I told him, I said, you just got through the S-Chip battle. S-Chip was just practice. It was a practice run for what this industry needed to do politically for the first time in its existence. And it was after that 2008 uh, trade show in Houston, Texas, when all of this started to come out about S-Chip,
0: and yeah. let me just stop you there, Glenn. The mm-hmm. S Chip, for those that don't know, is the State Children's Health Insurance Program, which previously was like a penny. It was a very small excise tax on tobacco products. And then when the S Chip tax went for renewal, the tax jumped massively.
2: To forty cents. Right. But the original proposal was ten dollars per stick. Right. And after that trade show in 2008, when all that came down out of Washington during the trade show, it came out during the trade show in Washington. Immediately after it, this was the this was Rocky Patel's reminiscent of the story. Rocky, Christian Aurora, Jeff Borshowitz, George Padron got on planes to Washington from that tra- trade show. And this was their grand political strategy. And this is a verbatim quote. Talk to anybody willing to talk to us. And that was the, that's just kind of dramatizes how far this whole battle has come from talk to anybody that will talk to us to multi million dollar lawsuits, multi million dollar lobbying campaigns, building coalitions in Congress to get our message out. It's amazing the level of sophistication this industry has undertaken to save itself since 2008, 2009.
0: And, and I was very candid in my comments to a number – because I also serve on the Florida Association of Broadcasters Board for many years, still do. And so I'm very familiar with lobbying, with lead, you know making sure that your voices are heard at the state capitol and at, at the, on the federal level because uh, you're either as, – as Eric Newman has a great saying – you're either uh, um, at the table or you're on the menu. And you right. have to be vocal. But I remember – you probably remember this. I stated. I said, look – Everybody looks around and thinks, oh, I, I don't have to do it. Let the big guys do it. I said, it's going to affect everybody. And unless everybody's unified, you're going to get taken to lunch. And a number of manufacturers really didn't heed the warning. They thought, well, let the General Cigars, let the Altadises, let the uh, the Davidoffs, you know, let the big guys handle everything. And I told small boutique manufacturers, and I told medium manufacturers, size manufacturers, many of them said, well, we don't have to really do that. It doesn't affect us. And I said, if you don't think you have to be at the table, you better think again. You're going to start writing big checks. It's just a matter of time. Well, they've all written big checks, and now they understand that that is a cost of doing business. You have to be at the table. And that has changed dramatically. I was at that meeting in Houston, and at the time, you know, the biggest complainers in the cigar industry, it was a meeting with the head of the uh, Cigar Association of America at the time. It was just a great—he was on top of things. Uh-huh. And, you know, people were yelling at him and angry at him. And he looked and said, you've never come to one of our conventions. You've never reached—we've reached out to you. You've never replied to any of the things. You've always said, well, it's not my job. So they were the biggest complainers, and yet they were the—they the, they refused to write any checks. So I said, if you want to be a stakeholder— break out the checkbook. And then they started to out of necessity, and they have had to. So when we look now at it started with the S-chip, we had that meeting in 2009 at the Biltmore Hotel, and then from there it just got worse and worse as the FDA, with this deeming rule, started to implement a number of regulations on the cigar industry, some of which there's no way scientifically to be able to enact. For example, they wanted the testing of every component in in a cigar. Well, we know that cigars consist, premium hand-rolled cigars consist of one thing, premium hand-rolled tobacco. That's it, cigar tobaccos that are naturally fermented where the nicotine and the ammonia dissipates. Very different process than a cigarette that has what? 300 chemical additives or whatever? It's very, very different. And then,
2: go ahead. No, I'm just going to, to dramatize your point is that our our mutual friend, Rocky Patel, who gave me permission to share this number publicly during a Tobacco Association of America meeting, is that based upon the number of SKUs that Rocky has on cigar shelves in cigar shops across America, based upon the number of SKUs, it's estimated that his testing costs, the testing of what you just described – would cost his company sixty-five million dollars, or put him out of business. Absolutely. I ask, and another quick economic point: when it came, when that deeming rule came out, immediately the United States Small Business Administration Office of Advocacy, which was set up to be an independent advisor to Congress on regulations, the Small Business Administration of the United States Government came out and said the cost of compliance with these rules would equal the profit margin for every cigar company.
0: Yep. Uh, it, a- absolutely crazy. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Now, another item that people don't realize, and this is a major effect, this th- there is a stipulation that any brand that was on the market, any blend that was on the market, had to be grandfathered. And I think the date they used initially was, it wasn't when they started to, they deemed cigars in April of 2014. They retroactively, the FDA went back and said, the cigars had to be on the market and the blend as of June 22nd, 2009, or you could no longer sell those cigars or you'd have to go through a very long approval process, which would take years and quite expensive. So the ability to create new brands would have been quashed.
2: That's exactly right. It would have been the end of the industry right there.
0: And I remember many, you know, that's why you saw a lot of brands that hadn't been on the market for a while, but they were all pre-2009. For example, Altatis Henry Clay. That was around pre-2009, and then it really kind of, they shelved it for a while, and now all of a sudden it's back. And the reason it's back is because those were grandfathered blends. So now that changes everything. Now, what else was, there were some other uh, issues as well too, Glenn. Uh, I believe, wasn't it that the manufacturing uh, uh, plants had, or the, wherever they, they, the, the cigars were manufactured, those facilities had to be inspected and tested and high-cost type of uh, inspections?
2: That was a part of the preliminary rule in 2014 and final rule in 16, But it's currently, currently a public comment open on manufacturing practice standards today, like within the next 30 days. And thank goodness, because of this ruling, the premium cigar industry will not be subject to that. But to this very moment, I mean, literally today. They, have, they were trying to subject premium cigar manufacturers to manufacturing practice standards that could just exponentially add dramatic costs to the production of, of premium handmade cigars. And going back to your point about about new blends and putting new cigars on the market, uh, Frank Herrera, who's a noted legal counsel in the, in the industry and has a lot of clients within the industry and a noted trademark attorney, <clears throat> noted that, and you know this as well as I do, a lot of these blends were never documented. There's right. no paperwork, if you will. Great cigar makers are artists. And they come up with a blend. They say, I add a little of this and add a little of that and a little Herrera here and a little from this Jalapa farm there. And they put it together and make the magic happen that produces great cigars. Well, not all that's documented. Not a, all. You, know, you try to explain that to a federal bureaucrat. <laughs> Forget it that these guys are on farms in Honduras and farms in Nicaragua and and the Dominican Republic, and they're coming up with blends based upon the availability of select and old tobaccos or new tobaccos or fermented tobaccos that have a certain amount of age on them. The magic is in the mind of the maker. It's not in some bureaucratic form that says, oh, we put this tobacco in it on this, and fill in the box. This industry doesn't operate like that, and it makes it truly, truly a unique art form.
0: So let's recap the timeline. June 22, 2009, Obama signs the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, which stipulated within that act that other tobacco products, including cigars, could be deemed part of those regulations at the behest of the FDA commissioner. In two thousand April of two thousand was it uh, two thousand fourteen? The the deeming rule came the, out. The deeming rule came out in two thousand fourteen. FDA commissioner at the time said, "We deem that cigars are now part of this, mm-hmm. and the regulations included regulations on warning labels, on blends, limitations pretty much, pretty much. of creating new blends. Yep. Yeah. Uh, user fee. User fees." which all of us as consumers have been paying. And there's a question about that that we'll get to in just a few minutes and a number of other items. So the now the, the Cigar Association of America, the IPCPR, which was the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers, which is now the PCA, the Premium Cigar Association, and the Cigar Rights of America jointly filed a lawsuit, correct? That's right. And the lawsuit wanted to throw it out saying that The FDA didn't have that right because they didn't follow the proper procedures to enact that. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. The Administrative Procedures Act. That's right. And
0: and and so now it goes to Judge Amit Mehta. And what year was that?
2: The case was filed in 17, so I think it ended up in front of Judge Mehta in early 18. I'm guessing at that, but it was somewhere in that ballpark.
0: So it has taken five years for the wheels of justice to turn in Washington and the federal level until Judge Mehta, this past Wednesday, vacated the FDA's deeming rule, sent it back to the agency. Uh, He he basically rejected. The FDA wanted the judge to, uh, to knock it down but sent it back to the FDA so they could follow the proper procedure, and the judge said, not so fast. Not happening. He said he found that the rule was arbitrary and capricious under the Federal Administrative Procedure Act, and it must be vacated, meaning struck down, unless there are exceptional circumstances. The FDA, in a brief, said the case was exceptional, noting that vacating the rule would leave premium cigars entirely unregulated at the federal level. Mater responded by saying that the concern was mitigated because state laws across the country prohibit the sale of cigars to minors, and most states now to persons under 21. Don't get me started on that. That's another ridiculous rule. But minors have never been able to purchase cigars legally, and that goes back, what, 40, 50 years, maybe more?
2: Absolutely.
0: So now the judge rules in favor of the... Cigar associations, the cigar industry, and by extension, the cigar consumers, the cigar connoisseurs, saying that the FDA didn't also follow proper studies. The associations provided studies showing that, number one, most, not most, all consumers are adults of premium cigars because you can't be a minor to purchase them. And number two, they never marketed to to kids. And number three, it's a product enjoyed in moderation. And number four, there are no health studies that show that using cigars in moderation is uh, any major health issue, any uh, major health impact. And we know this, and it's just like wine. Wine, a glass of wine a day, fine. You drink a bottle of wine a day, Glenn, I will guarantee you that is not healthy for you.
2: Oh, come on. You're kidding, right? I know. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Go figure.
0: But yet, wine is still being, you know, there's, there's no issues there. So that's where we are. Now, I have talked to numerous cigar manufacturers that were obviously ecstatic. They were thrilled. They said, this is great. We've won. And I said, don't get too smug and don't get too cocky. Because if you don't think the FDA is coming back, you better think again. They're going to try everything because you have to remember one thing. The FDA is run not by the FDA commissioner. It is not run really by the administration in, in power at the time. It's run by the administrative state. These are bureaucrats who are accountable to nobody. Their attitude is the president's going to come and go. The members of the House and Senate are going to come and go. The FDA commissioner is going to come and go. But we're going to be here in perpetuity. And so they believe that they are the divine arbiters of, of what rules should be implemented and what rules should not be implemented. So the, the cigar manufacturers I talked to, I said, you know, down, boys, because it's not over. And if you think you can stop spending on lobbying and making sure that we're in front of the right people in Washington, you better think again. And a number of them said, yeah, well, we're just enjoying, you know, the the, the victory now, which is great. But, Glenn, you know this. You've been a lobbyist and you've been around state capitals and and the federal capital for many years. This does not go away.
2: It does not. It emphatically does not. I had money riding on a bet that by 5 o'clock yesterday, heart, lung, cancer, the body parts lobby, campaign for tobacco-free kids. I read a piece where uh, in the New York Times yesterday where the public health community is already clamoring over this decision by Judge Maida. It emboldens them, not just the bureaucrats but the entire public health community that really hates us um, are going to be coming after us. And let's not forget, heart, lung cancer, and campaign for tobacco-free kids and a coalition of healthcare groups filed their own lawsuit against the FDA for what reason? Because they didn't think that the agency was moving fast enough on cigars. Right. So they're not bashful about using the courts to their advantage either, whether they're successful or not. It proves a part of their game plan. And so you can bet there will be public health community pressure on the agency to, quote, unquote, restart this process. There will be bureaucratic pressure from the prohibitionists in the agency to reopen this process. And we need we had this discussion yesterday, honestly, and I hate to get the cart before the horse, but there's going to be a need for another war chest for future litigation in, in this industry and we're going to need allies like we've always already built and we've got this now uh, a bipartisan congressional cigar caucus which met last week with week before last with Carlito Fuente and the Boutique Cigar Association so it had large small mid-sized manufacturers in front of numerous members of congress week before last we're going to need those allies again so this process never goes away never
0: well, I know Congressman Nick Langworthy, my friend from uh, the Western New York Theater of Operations, I believe he was in attendance. He sent me a picture with Ian Carlito. So uh, he was in attendance, and he's a great ally. Now, Glenn, do you think the FDA will appeal this ruling?
2: I'm not going to go that far, and I'm not going to prejudge that without you know, the advice of counsel. Okay. Uh, but let's put it this way. I've had numerous lawyers in the last 24 hours say that it's doubtful because of the strength of the meta opinion.
0: So they could go back to the drawing board and say, okay, we're going to continue, we'll deem it again, but we'll follow the rules. But And the big rub was the fact that even though the, the industry met with numerous officials at the FDA tobacco control uh, sec, uh, 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 operation, and no, of them, I think no, a, num- a number of them came down to visit the J.C. Newman Cigar Factory in Tampa to see exactly what you know their factory was all about. And oh, you they- provided mounds and mounds of information to
2: them mm-hmm. and studies, and yet they totally ignored it. They did, and I'm glad you brought that up. We filed a 654-page brief with the agency during one of the last public comment periods on regulations 654 pages i've got a copy of it right here on my desk judge made basically said the agency ignored what the industry provided and it's also important to note that this industry has been forced to study itself as never before there's been objective studies produced by the public health community data produced by the centers for disease control FDA-sponsored studies that clearly denoted that we're not the problem. And one of the reasons Judge Maida decided the way he did was he said the agency ignored that information.
0: They ignored it. And I remember being on a Zoom conference call. You told me about it, and I got on, and this has got to be a year ago at least, maybe longer, a year and a half ago. And it was, you know, like uh, 20 people from the FDA than these supposed health experts and I think there was a couple of people from the cigar industry, I'm not sure, but when I got off, I called you and I said, Glenn, the fix is in. These people, they their minds are already made up. They are absolute zealots. They cannot stand the fact that people enjoy cigars, and they will do everything they can to uh, to make purchasing and consuming cigars very, very difficult. Good news is we had a judge who... Saw the light and saw the truth, which is, uh, is kind of surprising in the Washington District right now, the D.C. Circuit, because that doesn't happen very often. So the industry certainly is fortunate that the judge ruled in their favor. And we cannot let our guard down you see this in Washington. Glenn, I'm sure you see this. We see this everywhere. The, I mean, they're trying to, to outlaw gas stoves and air conditioning and gas cars. It's to the point where now we've got this administrative state that believes they are the final arbiters, and they just believe that rights, our individual
2: liberties and rights, mean nothing. Well, I'm glad you brought up that it was the nascent. Public public hearing that you were referring to the National Academy of Science and Medicine. Right. Yes, the you know the 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 rhetoric coming out, the questions that were posed, the demeanor of the members of that panel did make their intent prejudged and clear. But but to the industry's uh, assistance, what that study panel did highlight is how unprepared the agency was to regulate us, and by that I mean. That NASM panels ended up saying that there needed to be about seven to nine other studies that had never been done before they could even think about regulating us. It proved, that panel proved how unprepared the agency was to, to even think about regulating us. They, the unanswered questions are so numerous, and even though we provided data and the industry provided data uh, to substantiate our point, the, the agency clearly was not prepared to undertake this regulatory process, and the NASM panel proved that, and and Judge Mehta actually referred to that.
0: Well, the good news, Glenn, is now the cigar industry is united. They understand what it means to lobby, what it means to know their congressmen, their senators, what it means to be politically proactive, and... I think that was a tremendous there's a tremendous learning curve early on but now they have the everybody I've talked to said we understand that this is not going to go away that we this is going to be a continual part of doing business just like every other industry whether you're in the broadcasting industry the automotive industry the the uh, uh, any consumer products you have to make sure that your story is heard to the lawmakers in Washington and to the bureaucrats it is, it is important. So the good news is the industry is united. Now, Glenn, as the Director of State Advocacy, you have been quite busy and you've had many successes uh, uh, to be congratulated for this year because a number of states that you've been working in, they have now passed caps on the state taxes. So that has made cigars more affordable
2: for consumers. It's been a great year for the state in the state capital business. And I don't know about the Politics and timing of it, but the sun, the moon, and the stars aligned with tax caps being passed in Idaho and Montana and Nevada. Uh, cigar bar legislation passing in North Dakota and a reversal of an existing statute allowing now for cigar bars in the state of Connecticut. Uh, cigar bars now allowed at resorts in the state of West Virginia legislation in South Carolina that prevents local governments from passing laws and ordinances stronger than that of the state. It was eight governors this year signed pro cigar legislation. And we had a a monumental moment, just a historical moment. Anytime a politician is willing to show up in a cigar shop to, to commemorate such a moment, you got to be thankful. And Michael Fry and the team of retailers in Nevada had the governor of Nevada show up at during the trade show at his Cigar Box—that's the name of the shop, Cigar Box—in right off of the Strip in in Vegas to sign the tax cap bill for the state of Nevada.
0: Oh, that's awesome!
2: So, and he had a cigar with us while he was doing it.
0: <laughs> Fantastic! That—that's great. So, what other what other state uh, issues are you working on currently?
2: Well, uh, it's funny you bring that up too because we're—I'm on my way to Indiana on Sunday. Monday, uh, midday, we're having a meeting with all the retailers in the state of Indiana about dropping, pushing to drop the cap in Indiana from $1 down to something far more reasonable. Tax cap legislation is being planned for the state of Nebraska and the state of Georgia, and the state of New York is not giving up on tax cap and cigar bar legislation in Albany as well. So we might need some of your New York friends to help chime in on that in the 2024 legislative session as well.
0: For sure. Glenn, how can our lieutenants, our alphas, how can they find you, social media? Give us your uh, your, your
2: various platforms. Real quick, the number one platform for the consumer and retail community, but it's really our consumer outreach, is CigarAction.org. CigarAction.org. With that, put in your name and zip code, and you'll get updates on any political news affecting your state. Also, news in general about the cigar industry at premiumcigars.org. And before we go, I do want to point out at the state level and the federal level, the FDA is still planning on a flavor ban. And September the 9th is the closing date for public comment on that. And we don't know how broad that's going to be. So you remember our mutual friend Ted Jackson in Kentucky who makes sure. the Makers Mark Cigar. Right. You know, the Makers Mark Cigar is, is cigar tobacco aged in a bourbon barrel. I don't think with, at Ted's prices that's being marketed or sold to children either. We don't know how broad uh, in general that flavor ban's going to be. So we're going to be going on record as opposing that. And flavor bans were all over the country this year, and all those bills died in state capitals. But I just want to bring that up because, you know, the ba- it goes back to your very point. The battle's never going to end.
0: We have to be vigilant. Cigaraction.org. Congratulations to you, Glenn, on the state victories as well as the PCA and the CAA and the CRA and all the cigar manufacturers on the big victory uh, that Judge Ahmed Mehta, made for them, for all of us that are cigar connoisseurs, knocking out the deeming rule, and we have to be ever vigilant. Glenn, as always, great having you on on a happy occasion instead of a dour
2: occasion. Thank you, General, and thank you for your literally decades-long advocacy. You've reached the airways. You've allowed us to get our message out to audiences we never would have gotten otherwise. So thank you for your backup and service uh, during this battle as well.
0: Maduro cigar wrappers are known for their unique complexity of flavor. That include richness, spiciness, and subtle notes of sweetness. Now, if you take a Maduro wrapper and make an entire cigar of Maduro wrapper and Maduro binder, Maduro filler, what do you get? Camacho Triple Maduro, a Mexican San Andreas Maduro wrapper, a Mexican Corojo Maduro binder, and then Maduro fillers from Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and Brazil, you get a cigar that is dark, rich, full-on flavor, medium to full-bodied, with notes of cedar, roasted nuts, some pepper, and a subtle sweetness. The Camacho Triple Maduro, available at DavidoffGeneva.com. Thoroughly enjoying my Partagas 150 AA. This cigar originally given to me in 1996, the Partagas 150s came out in 1995 to commemorate the 150th anniversary of Partagas. Priceless cigars right now, unavailable. The last time they were about, what, seven years ago? I think they were about, for the box of 50 I have, would have been about $3,700. But they are far more priceless today. Mm. Celebrating that great court victory and special thanks to Glenn Loop, longtime friend from the Premium Cigar Association, for joining us. Let's talk about our good old friend, Bonad Sanders, shall we? Good old Bonad, the millionaires, the billionaires, the trillionaires, you're responsible for everything. Now, now I'm not so I don't have problems with the billionaires because I but on Sanders, my wife Jade, who looks like a cow. I'm a billionaire, she's a billionaire, we're all billionaires. If I become a billionaire, then I won't go after billionaires, but I will go after zillionaires and trillionaires. Good old Bernard Sanders, the socialist independent from Vermont, home of Ben and Jerry's. Bernie Sanders, that bastion of anti-capitalism that bastion of socialism, the man that demonizes anybody trying to make a profit, any capitalist, you are evil. Yet, good old Bernard Sanders has no problem purchasing three houses. He has no problem being a capitalist. In fact, his last book was on anti-capitalism, and yet he actually got a big payday for that book. So if he's so anti-capitalism, Why not say, I'm not going to take anybody for the book, or I'm going to give all the money away. No, 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 no. Remember, do as I say, not as I do, like most politicians. Well, Bernard Sanders, the big socialist, the man who thinks money is the root of all evil, funneled $200,000 from his campaign coffers to his wife's nonprofit institute called... The Sanders Institute. What a creative name! The Sanders Institute. Hello, this is Bernard Sanders. Welcome to my institute, the Institute for Socialism. While at the same time, me being a capitalist, he is so full of bull. It is absolutely incredible. They cut two one hundred thousand dollar checks to the. See, now that I say the Sanders Institute, I got to say it like Bernie Sanders: the Sanders Institute two $100,000 checks reported as charitable contributions in January and March of this year, according to FEC Federal Election Commission records. The Institute, the Sanders Institute, is run by his wife, Jane Sanders, nothing to look at, and his stepson, David Driscoll. They both co-established the Sanders Institute in 2017 and I quote here to act as a think tank to promote progressive voices. However, the reality is the Sanders Institute was created in 2017 to act as a way to funnel money from my campaign to my family. That is fact. But Ad Sanders, his Sanders Institute from the latest available tax forms in 2021, show that the supposed nonprofit. Spent 40% of its donations on salaries while conducting minimal work, having very few identifiable accomplishments. Bernard Sanders' stepson, David Driscoll, is the big beneficiary. In 2021, the Institute raised $716,000. Let's call it, it was $716,618, we'll call it $717,000. 257,000 went into wages including 153,000 in salary to his step, stepson David Driscoll who acts as the executive director. Do you think for one moment this is legit? Does this not look a little bit on the suspicion? no, a lot on the suspicious side? Two donations this year, 200,000 and I will guarantee you it funded his stepson. This is nothing more than a means of wealth conveyance from Bernie Sanders' big campaign war chest to his institute. Now, legally, it shows as a donation to a nonprofit, the Sanders Institute. When in reality, they take those funds and then in turn distribute it and disperse it to his wife and to the son, uh, the stepson. Now, clearly, the stepson can't be too bright if he's got to run the Sanders Institute. And what have they done of major accomplishment? Well, this year they've launched, or they, they, uh, they posted a whopping two YouTube videos, both of which were quick messages to their followers. And then on Twitter, now known as X, they basically just re X'd or retweeted outside news articles and opinion pieces from its fellows. And despite Jane Sanders' insistence she wanted to support other progressive organizations at the time of the Sanders Institute launch, the Institute has failed to do so. The nonprofit reported no grants to other liberal groups in its tax tax records for 2021. This is nothing more than a way to convey campaign donations that were made legally into Bernard Sanders' campaign coffers, and then transfer them under the guise of being donations to his nonprofit institute to thus pay the wife and the son. Maxine Waters has done the same thing with her campaign. Other, other senators and, and congressional officials have done the same thing. It reeks to high heaven. Now, these are the same people all saying we need election reform. We must have election reform. Remember John McCain? My friends, we need election reform. They were all about election reform, but they love traveling on the private jets. They love being able to dole out cash to institutes and other nonprofits that they set up and then fund the lifestyles of their family. It reeks to high heaven. It stinks, not kosher. But here's Bernard Sanders, Mr. Anti Capitalist. Using a capitalist means, really a, really a very skanky means of transferring money from his campaign to his nonprofit institute. Apparently, the, the, the stepson isn't smart enough to get a job anywhere else. Hey, why, why get a job anywhere else when you get 150 to 200 grand to essentially do nothing? The gig is going to run up someday, but not before his family and the wife. Are enriched. So maybe they can buy a fourth house. And meanwhile, Bernard Sanders, Mr. Bernard Sanders, uh, we, we, must, we must get rid of fossil fuels. The earth is burning. It's terrible. We need solar panels and windmills. Oh, but I don't want any solar panels and windmills in Vermont. He is now asking the Department of Injustice to prosecute people in the fossil fuel industry for dissenting on climate change. I get a kick out of the Marxist Democrats, and Democrats today are Marxists, there is no difference. They are extreme, they are Marxists. And what have we been hearing for the last couple of years? We can't elect President Donald Trump again. He's a threat to democracy. And I use that in air quotes, a threat to democracy. We hear that all the time. Whenever a Marxist Democrat, and I use Democrats and Marxists interchangeably now because that's what the Democrat Party has become. They are true enemies of America, make no mistake. Every time they suggest and raise holy hell that Republicans are a threat to democracy, Donald Trump is a threat to democracy, any Republican or any independent thinker, RFK Jr., a threat to democracy, Everything they accuse, the Republicans, Trump, RFK, everything they accuse them of is exactly what they are themselves doing. It is projection at its finest. So the Dems, the Marxists, they've been screaming about authoritarianism, fascism, Trump's a fascist. Last time I looked, I don't recall President Trump signing anything into law that wasn't passed by both chambers of the Congress, the Senate, and the House. I don't think he unilaterally declared any law. You could do executive orders, but those aren't laws. Those can, those can be rescinded and they have limitations. But yet, Republicans, Trump, they're authoritarians, they're fascists. Well now, Bernard Sanders, in a typical Marxist, O'Biden move. And let me say why I call the current regime the O'Biden. It is Obama that is running things, and Biden is the puppet. He's the stooge. Biden couldn't find his way out of a piss-soaked paper bag today. Obama is quietly running things. He did it through Valerie Jarrett and Susan Rice. But Susan Rice is out. But there's other people. If you look at 80 90% of the Biden regime, the members of the regime, they're former Obama administration officials and acolytes. The Department of Injustice. Now Bernard Sanders asking them to use their power, the force of government. We've seen it against Trump in its worst way. We are seeing it being reared. It is amazing for people that, again, th- say that Republicans and Trump are fascists and authoritarians and threats to democracy. The ones that are doing all the threats to democracy and pulling fascist authoritarian moves are the Democrats, the Marxists, the old Biden regime. Now, the fossil fuel industry has been around for, what, 100 years. We need fuel. We need gas to operate our cars, heat our homes, to transport us by a train, by a plane, by a ship. Last time I looked, Air Force One didn't have solar panels or windmills on the top of the fuselage. It used jet fuel, part of the fossil fuel industry. But now, when members of the fossil fuel industry, when companies and executives have the audacity to challenge the climate change narrative, and it is a hoax, make no mistake. And I have two perfect examples that I will render to you in just a few minutes. But whenever you hear a Marxist, somebody that is brainwashed, that from a young age, you see kids now that come home crying, the earth is burning, we're all gonna die, because they've been indoctrinated they have been brainwashed in classrooms from grade school to high school to college. And then you hear people, I, I, I heard one of the local meteorologists here, Jeff Berardelli, in the Cigar City of Tampa, of the NBC affiliate, saying, well, 99% of, of, of scientists already believe that science is settled. They believe a climate change. It's fact. This tells me, number one, Jeff is not very smart. And by the way, Jeff, if you ever want to come and debate me, whether it's on television or here on my show, I'm happy to do so. I'll bring facts. You bring fiction. Because whenever I hear someone say it's settled, 99%, give me the names. Nobody in any profession believes 99% in anything. Just doesn't happen. But we hear it all the time. 99% of scientists agree. Climate change is real. Bullshit. But now, all of a sudden, if you have the audacity to disagree with with these supposed scientists or with the bullshit coming from being spewed from these these Marxist senators and, and government officials, if you disagree, you dispute, you bring facts, all of a sudden they want to prosecute now. First Amendment allows you to have differing opinions. But now they want, and there's a coalition, it's not just Bernard Sanders. Senators Ed Markey from Massachusetts, Jeff Merkley from Oregon, Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas, also from Massachusetts. They're now saying that the fossil fuel companies have conducted a long-standing and carefully coordinated campaign to mislead Americans about the risks posed by global, global warming and discredit climate science in pursuit of profits. Excuse me one moment. If that is not calling the kettle black, the only people that are conducting a long-standing and carefully coordinated campaign are the Marxist Democrats and the globalists that want everyone to suffer, nobody to have a car except them. Do you think for a minute any democrat, any of the senators or members of the house, they're going to give up flying? They're going to give up their boats? They're going to give up their SUVs? Think again but to now challenge people to say we want to inflict criminal charges on executives in the climate or in the in the fossil fuel industry the oil companies because they happen to disagree is beyond authoritarian is beyond fascist and here's proof in the pudding that it's all bullshit this climate change hoax what did we hear the last few weeks since july ended July was the hottest month on records in the last 130 years since we've been keeping climate records. Oh, it's getting hotter, and, 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 and it's, not, it's not climate change anymore now. We've got climate boiling. We heard the head of the UN say, we now have climate boiling. But what they neglect to tell you is that June was one of the coolest months, summer months on record. This comes to us from NASA, from their very own satellites, July was not the warmest month on satellite record. That belonged to February of 2016. February was the warmest month on satellite record. July was about as warm as April 1998. And again, June, one of the coolest summer months on record. Isn't it amazing how they distort fact- they engage in fiction. Let's take a look at what's happening in the Arctic. What do we hear all the time? The North Pole, the Antarctic, Antarctica, the Arctic and Antarctica, they are going to melt, the glaciers are melting, sea levels are going to rise. If we don't do anything, we'll all be underwater. The Arctic in 2023 is having the shortest summer on record. The melt season at both the North Pole and Greenland started late, and are wrapping up very early. I'm looking at a chart from 1958 to 2002, looking at the daily mean temperature for the climate north of the 80th north uh, uh, parallel. And then they show it, comparing it to 2022, 2023. Summer started late, and it's ending early. Does that sound like warming to you? And what do we hear? We need to get to net zero emissions immediately. John Kerry, we, if we don't get to net zero, everything's going to burn. The earth is going to be destroyed. Remember our little friend Greta Thunberg? Remember
2: Greta Thunberg? People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? How dare you? How
0: dare you? And she tweeted five years ago, if we don't do anything by June of 2023, the earth would end as we know it. Destruction. She had to delete the tweet because it was not true. Here's June 2023. We lived through it. We're still here. We're looking around. I'm looking outside. It's warm. It's nice. Earth's still here. Sun's still shining. Greta Thunberg, and all the climate change activist hoaxers are all full of garbage.
1: No more blah, blah, blah. No more
0: blah, blah, blah. And here's the proof in the pudding that you cannot go to net zero. Man is only responsible, humans, for only just about less than 5% of the CO2 emissions. More than 95% of annual CO2 emissions come from plants soils, and the ocean. And I'm looking at a chart here, and it shows it all. This is nothing but a hoax. This is a wealth transfer scheme, and it is time for people to wake up. Nazi director of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, said, if you tell a lie often enough, people will believe it. Al Gore has been talking about the first it was global warming, then it was cooling its climate change. He's been telling a lie for 30 years. More than that, scientists, 40, 50 years, and he really spread it. And John Kerry and all these other clowns spread it incredibly. And we hear the, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, that Nazi bested, the globalist, that says we need a global reset. Nobody should have cars. They must change using from fossil fuels. Meanwhile, those that attend the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland every winter, they come by private jet. (coughs) Doing that accent made me cough. Let me take a drink here. Stand by. Mm. Klaus Schwab makes you cough. They come, I think there's what, 300 jets that come in? They're all full of baloney. <clears throat> Excuse me. Bernie Sanders, the man who funnels 200000 into his Sanders Institute to shell out to his, his wife Jane and his stepson and then wants to go after the members of the fossil fuel industry and executives. It's fascist. It's authoritarian. It is not true. I am happy to debate any meteorologist, any scientist, because I have the facts and the data, and they never want to hear that. When you debate a Marxist, an enemy of pleasure, a liberal, a progressive, a climate change hoaxer, and you come with facts, after a few minutes, here's exactly the here's their playbook. They'll argue with you, and then you'll give them fact after fact, which they cannot rebut, at which point they say, that's it, enough. I, I, I can't. I can't deal with you. I, you can't. I can't be rational with you. That's it. I'm done. I'm leaving. They end the debate because they cannot engage in facts. They cannot debate. Uh, uh, engage in factual debate. It's all made up fiction. Perfect example: climate change. Yet you want to. Why is it you want to go prosecute? executives of the oil industry, fossil fuel industry, because they disagree with you? This is what the Marxist-Democrat party has come to. Because they cannot have any opposition. They don't want a Republican opposition. They don't want anybody but Democrats, Marxists, winning the Oval Office for the White House, in Congress, Senate. If you do, you're a criminal. I always said Donald Trump's original crime was beating Hillary Clinton, who believes she was anointed and Democrats believe she was anointed to be the first woman president. He beat her. And what did they do? Bullshit election, election denialism, Russia, Russia, Russia. All the things that they are accusing Trump of, they did, yet they didn't get prosecuted. Don't even get me started on the bullshit Trump prosecutions all over the place. That is warfare. It's legal warfare. It is the same exact underhanded illegal tactics that are used by dictatorships and banana republics around the world and we're using it here and for any marxist or any democrat or any member of the biden regime to scold any other country for any of their election irregularities or things they deem like in israel they're going the the uh, biden said that he wants the Israeli government to take things slow, and the Netanyahu government, because he doesn't want to have Supreme Court change. It's a threat to their democracy. Baloney. He has no authority, no legal authority, no moral authority to tell Israel or any other country what to do and how they should conduct their internal affairs. Start with the internal affairs of the corrupt O'Biden regime, the Department of Injustice. The fraudulent bureau of investigation, the CIA, goes on and on. It is a disgrace. And when President Trump becomes the 47th president, he should absolutely burn the FBI, the CIA, the DOJ to the studs. I don't mean throw a bomb, because now you have to clarify these things. Because it's okay for a Democrat to say, burn the place down. But if a Republican says it, we're going to prosecute you. I mean, get rid of all the corrupt employees, all the administrative state. Change the emissions, get rid of You could get rid of 90% of those agencies and start with not reauthorizing the Patriot Act. End it. Same thing with these bullshit FISA warrants. End it. They've been abused, it cannot be reformed. Now, finally, air travel is no picnic anymore. We know that. It's not pleasant. Summer's been one of the worst summers for air travel, delays, and just planes, uh, flights that have been canceled, delayed. It's been an absolute disaster. Or as Bernard Sanders would say, a disaster. It is a disaster. Like Ron uh, DeSantis' campaign, a total disaster. Now, I understand if a captain wants to come on and says, make a nice speech and say, look, We want to have a nice flight, everyone, so we ask you just some ground rules. Be polite. Be courteous to your fellow passengers. Please allow the the flight attendants to get through the aisles. I will, as the captain, give you my pledge that if there are any delays or if there's any type of issues that arise, I will communicate with you properly and I will keep you up to date. The problem is many airline captains today are wussified betas. I see it. I know it. I'm a pilot myself. You have to be an alpha. All my pilot friends are alphas. You have to be decisive. But many of this newer crop of airline pilots are betas. And think about it. They grew up in an area where they were feminized, they were wussified, they were betafied. And so they don't know how to communicate. They don't communicate with passengers. And they don't know how to, and they don't have interpersonal people skills in many cases. Now, let me give you an example of a, an airline captain who I believe went overboard. This made the rounds on social media, started on Instagram and then made its way across all of social media. This is an American Airlines 737 captain who essentially gave the equivalent of a TED Talk on a pre-flight speech, a pre-flight message. Let's take a listen.
3: Flight attendants are primarily here for your safety. After that, they're here to make your flight more enjoyable. They're going to take care of you guys, but you will listen to what they have to say because they represent my will in the cockpit or in the cabin. And my will is what matters. Be nice to each other. Be respectful of each other. I shouldn't have to say that. You, people should treat people the way you want to be treated, but I have to say it every single flight because people don't. And they're selfish and rude, and we won't have it. Okay? Steal your stuff. Get it out of everybody else's way. Put your junk work alone. is everybody have paid for a space? Don't lean on other people, don't fall asleep on other people, don't pass out on other people or drool on them unless you've talked about it, and they have a weather-resistant jacket. (laughs) Alright, a little bit of fatherhood here, the other thing. The social experiment on listening to videos on speaker mode and talking on a cell phone on speaker mode, that is over, over and done in this country. Nobody wants to hear your video. I know you think it's super sweet, it probably is, but it's your business, right? So keep it to yourself. Use your AirPods, use your headphones, whatever it is, that's your business. Okay, it's just part of being in a respectful society. Middle seaters, I know it stinks to be in the middle. Raise your hand. Raise them up. Anybody in the middle? Like five people. Yeah, right. That's full. All right, nobody's less than Fine. You own both armrests. That is my gift to you. Welcome on board our flight.
0: What a pleasant guy, huh? If I were the chief pilot of American Airlines, I'd bring him into my office and tell him, don't ever pull that bullshit again. There's a difference between Making a proper pre-flight speech, pre-flight announcement, giving a TED talk, and being dour and miserable. Clearly, this guy is miserable. Maybe he's upset because he can't get promoted from flying a shitty little 737 up to a 787 or an A330 like all my other airline captain friends, like Captain Cy and Captain Eric and several other friends. Maybe he's just relegated to being flying that little 737 piece of shit. I don't know. But he was rude. He was patronizing. He was dour. Now, I spoke to several airline captains that I know, played it for them. I said, Would you have said that? And they said, No. What they would have done, exactly what I would have done, a very simple speech. Welcome aboard, everyone. Glad to have you on flight one, two, wherever. We'll be shoving off momentarily. Today, route of flight is uh, wherever. Expect a nice ride, one hour and 15 minutes. A couple of things I just ask politely so that we all have a nice flight and we all get there not only safely but happily is please be respectful of your seatmates for other people. We ask that you stay out of the aisles when you can. If you have uh, headphones, please use your headphones. Also be courteous when you recline back. And also, remember, I know some of you, uh, you know, there's, it's not comfortable to be in the middle seat. So we just ask everybody to be courteous. We realize that air travel is not pleasant. There have been a lot of delays, a lot of cancellations this summer. You may have been on some of those flights. But I give my pledge to you that if we do have any delays or there are any other unexpected issues, that I will... Make announcements forthcoming. I will keep you properly in the loop. And if we do have excessive delays, I will not keep you on board. I will order that we deplane so that nobody, we're not in a hot cabin and we don't get tensions uh, rising. We want to have a nice flight. So everybody does their part. We'll have a great flight, and I'll do our part up here. Give you a great, safe ride. That's all you say. But this captain seemed miserable, clearly an enemy of pleasure, Maybe he was a Marxist Democrat, I don't know. But to me, just not a pleasant way to welcome people on board. Now, some people said, oh, that's long overdue, that's great. Okay, I disagree, I think there's a proper way to do so. Make your point, make your point, and again, both captains that I spoke to said, listen, we've had issues that come up, there's ways to do it, and we address it in a positive way, in a friendly way, not as being a, a commandant, not as being a dictator, not as being a just a, a rude, unpleasant prick. Let me play it for you one more time.
3: Night attendants are primarily here for your safety after that. They're here to make you play more enjoyable. They're going to take care of you guys, but you will listen to what they have to say because they represent my will in the cockpit or in the cabin, and my will is what matters. Be nice to each other. Be respectful of each other. I shouldn't have to say that. People should treat people the way you want to be treated. But I have to say it, every single flight, because people don't. And they're selfish and rude, and we won't have it. Okay? Do your stuff. Get it out of everybody else's way. Put your junk where it belongs. Everybody have pay for a
0: space. I've heard enough. The only rude one was that captain, that American 737 captain. Maybe, Captain, one day you'll actually fly a real good airplane, like a 787 at American, or a 757, 767. Maybe. Most likely you won't, because you sound like a very unhappy SOB. All right, lastly, don't forget, if you want to communicate with me, CigarDave at CigarDave.com, CigarDave at CigarDave.com. Make sure you go ahead and follow us on all the social media platforms, Twitter slash X at Cigar Dave Show, Facebook and Instagram Cigar Dave, Truth Social, Cigar Dave and Getter Cigar Dave. I think that pretty much covers it. But Cigar Dave at CigarDave.com, easy way to get a hold of me. That does it for this edition of The Cigar Dave Show. Great week in that. We won a great court case for those of us that love cigars and the cigar industry. Cigar Day, the general. Say, Mayor Humidor, always be full. Mayor Cutter, always be sharp. Mayor Ashby, extra, extra long. Semper show always pleasure. Long live the alpha. Make masculinity great again. Screw the enemies of pleasure. Screw the Marxists. Hashtag Save America. Hashtag Trump 24. Have a fantastic weekend.